On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Tonight on The Readout. Like I said, well, well, I've been a terrible liar on on those subjects. I ran in 2020 for the same exact seat um, for Congress, and I got away with it then. That was George Anthony Duvalder Kitara Revach Santos back in February. Today, a congressional subcommittee issued a scathing report on his lies and potential crimes and the use of campaign funds for Botox and OnlyFans, among other things. Also tonight, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis moves to revoke the bond of one of Trump's co-defendants, accusing him of trying to intimidate witnesses and his fellow co-defendants. How very, very Trumpian. But we begin tonight with the unholy trinity of the modern-day Republican Party, Kanye, Elon, and Trump. That is according to House Judiciary Republicans, anyway, who about a year ago cranked out the tweet that you see on the screen. The tweet stayed up for two months until December 2022, when Republicans finally deleted it after Ye appeared with Sandy Hook conspiracy theorist Alex Jones and publicly praised Adolf Hitler. As the bulwark noted, that tweet did not age well. Ye is now famous for having dinner with Trump and white nationalist and Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes at Mar-a-Lago. While Elon Musk, as the new owner of Twitter, promised to bring back right-wing figures who were once banned, including Donald Trump. He even recently endorsed a post attacking Jewish communities and accusing them of promoting dialectical hatred against whites. And as for Trump, he took a break from scowling in a Manhattan courtroom to host a rally in New Hampshire, where he vowed to root out his enemies. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. That's right. Dehumanizing your enemies and opponents by calling them vermin. A tactic famously used by Nazis Adolf Hitler and Mussolini. There's this weird, confusing trend that has taken over American politics, where folks once seen as icons of the left, or at least public figures with broad appeal, have moved to the far right and are getting more extreme over time. You have Ye, who went from George Bush doesn't care about black people to praising Trump's dragon energy. Then there's Trump, who millions tuned in to watch on The Apprentice, regardless of their political stance. As for Elon Musk, he's long had his billionaire tech entrepreneur cred, known as the Tesla guy who sold a million cars to a lot of left coast liberals before turning Twitter into a hate speech free for all. In recent years, all three of these men have shifted into a different form of celebrity, known more for emboldening white supremacists and for fueling racism and hate in the U.S. than for anything else. Their rise represents a kind of chaos movement that has happened over the last 10 years. In other times, these are not people who would be seen as leaders of substance. 
But in the dangerous, erratic world we now occupy, these are the people many Americans are listening to. It's why we need to pay attention to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's not exactly Kanye or Elon or Trump, but he has his own anti-Semitic and racist controversies to contend with. He also has some extreme views. And importantly, his independent run for the White House isn't as fringe as it seems. He's actually becoming a force in this election. According to recent polling, he's at 21 points, only 16 points behind President Biden. Among young voters, he's polling at 32. Like the others, fame came before infamy. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the son of Bobby and nephew of JFK, a champion of the environment, as close to a royal heir as Americans can get. But make no mistake, he is dangerous. RFK Jr. has spent years stoking fear of vaccines. He's risen to become a major figure in the anti-vax movement. And we're not just talking about COVID vaccines, but all vaccines, measles, mumps, rubella. A crusade like this has real-life consequences, something that likely keeps his family up at night. Three Kennedy family members even wrote a piece in Politico declaring RFK Jr. has been tragically wrong about vaccines. There's one last thing about these chaos candidates, something they all have in common, and that is the money. Suzanne Craig shares some fascinating details in her piece in the New York Times about how RFK Jr. has turned his public crusade into a private windfall and how his crusades, backed by the power of his surname, have earned him tens of millions of dollars. Suzanne Craig joins me now, along with Shermichael Singleton, political strategist and host of the Shermichael Singleton Show on Sirius XM. Thank you both for being here. I want to start with you, Suzanne. Let's go through this, because your piece is fascinating, because one of the things that demystifies is how rich RFK Jr. really is. You know, it, it, they, they call it praise without raise, uh, Caribbean folks will say, that he has the name and he has the fame, but he doesn't necessarily have the capital. But, you know, these crusades that he's embarked on have actually made him a lot of money. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. And, you know, Joy, I have to say, when I started this um article and reporting for this story. I didn't know a lot about Robert F. Kennedy, except he was a Kennedy and he'd done some good work cleaning up the Hudson River. And I started to dig into it and I thought this guy's got to be wealthy. He's got to have trust funds. And one of the first things that I noticed there was a public filing was that he was getting very little steady income off of his trust funds. And my sort of mission when I set out was to sort of look at at his money and how he makes it. And then I thought, well, there's, you know, there's a few other things. He's got these jobs and they're at nonprofits for the most part or environmental groups, and they weren't throwing off very much money. But you could tell just by a Google search that he was, he had a fairly expensive lifestyle. You didn't know if some of that came from other family money that I wasn't seeing. But I just started digging, and I, I had noticed that he had gone through a divorce in 2012. And I thought, well, maybe there's some some documents in there when there's, you know, a divorce. The depositions are about the finance. Unfortunately, when people get divorced, it's usually about the money. And I ended up being able to review some of the documents from his divorce from from Mary Richardson Kennedy. And it just opened up this door for me to understand how he makes his money. And it was incredible to see behind this name and this image that you think that he's working for a nonprofit was this just incredible private hustle that he has been doing for decades. He is a lawyer. He gets money from that. But he also, um, he's got, he's been able to intertwine his legal work with some of the nonprofit work that he has been doing. But then there was just this incredible 
just it, it was just I, the pace of the speeches that he was giving, sometimes up to 60 a year, uh, make, charging upwards of $250,000. And then he was on advisory boards and boards of directors. He ended up in 2005 getting involved with a major venture capital firm out in California called Vantage Point. That netted him millions of dollars. And then he also was on the boards of a number of companies connected to Vantage Point. And all of this added up to a huge amount of money, but he at the same time we learned through the divorce documents was leading an incredibly extravagant life. And you just always felt like he was just treading water and he was pleading that he was, you know, he was telling his friends that he was broke. He he got on one board, I found out, because he told a friend of he was he was broke and, and he got set up with a board, a board position there. It was just really incredible to get this window into his world that was just years of of this sort of behavior. It, did you get the sense in doing this research, Suzanne, that the anti-vax stuff, because he was more known for being an environmentalist and people on the left right, really revered him for being, right? Is the yeah. anti-vax stuff a grift, to be blunt? And is the run for president a grift? Well, the anti-vax stuff, there is a, there's a wrinkle in that, and that's that he, you know, he joined this organization called the Children's Health Defense um, you know, in, in recent years, and he is the, the chief legal officer and the chairman, he went from almost no money to half a million dollars. And he gets paid, you know, more than three times the president. He is a prolific fundraiser for them. So I think there could be an argument there that that he should be paid more, we could debate whether that is too much. But what he did there, in addition, to to getting a huge salary from a from a nonprofit he then went out and he says he got permission from the nonprofit to do this but he established relationships with law firms where he was bringing you know he could participate in lawsuits potentially bring some in the door that he could participate in against pharmaceutical companies some related to vaccines and then he could get paid for that he says that the children's health defense fund the nonprofit is getting some money back for that but um, but it was just fascinating to see even there he was saying half a million dollars is not enough. So I need this yeah. other thing. And then we found out a little bit, you know, he he along the way, you see this with rich people. I covered Wall Street for a long time and, and it, it just was interesting to see. We found out um, that he had taken a free car from Lexus and mm. also even one of the one of the homes on the Kennedy compound. Um, that you would think was his. He actually leased it for years from a wealthy friend and then bought it um, at a rate that he you know, had agreed 10 years before the same rate. And he was also even one of the non-profits that he worked for. And I found this quite troubling. He had agreed, um, he had an agreement with them that they would pay for the airfare for his children to fly with him on longer trips. And I talked to him about that. He said, well, sometimes I was away from my family for a week or two when I was out of the country. So they would pay the airfare. And I don't know many people at corporations that have that sort of agreement, but he, he right. just, it, it was sort of just accepted that that would happen. Um, he kind of sounds like Clarence Thomas. <laughs> he kind of sounds, I mean, he does. I mean, there, there is a thing where I mean, he has this advantage, Sir Michael, mm -hmm. of the name. The surname oh, yeah. is gold mm -hmm. for politics. Right. People have the perception that he's this fabulously wealthy, wealthy man, yeah. so he's unbuyable in mm -hmm. their mind, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of the way people thought Trump was a billionaire when he wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, but he's he, he, it feels like what he's doing is making himself really famous, trading on that, 
And it's actually working. Yeah, there are no. a lot of people who want to vote for him. I'll just put the numbers yeah. up. Donald Trump versus Joe Biden versus Robert F. Kennedy Jr. gets 21 percent. Yeah, I mean, look, he's doing better against the sitting president than Ron DeSantis, the governor Correct. of a large state, is doing against the former president, which is really quite unprecedented when you really think about it. You would think this should be in the reverse, uh, Joy. But with that said, I mean, I read through the article twice. It was a fascinating story. And what it appears is that Kennedy really has uh, built a career financially off of the name. And I'm not necessarily against that necessarily, uh, but the amount of money and how he made it, where the money was coming from, is quite astonishing. I mean, he used his name oftentimes in many of these law firms and nonprofits for them to then go out and sue individuals with Kennedy being on the board. Isn't that and what um, Republicans are trying to impeach Hunter Biden for? <laughs> I knew you were going to go there, Joy. I mean, look, I'm not against it, but but I can see how Republicans may want to politicize this against Hunter Biden because we're in the midst of an election, right? And I, I understand that. I'm not necessarily certain if it's going to move the needle for Democratic voters. Yeah. Uh, maybe it may move no, the needle no a little bit that. for Republic or, or right-leaning independents, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't seen data that, that would convince me that this is something that's going to benefit Republicans politically. Well, well, let me ask you this, because this is the question, is what is his appeal? Because you are seeing him poll really high. Yeah. Is it just name ID, or is it just a hunger for an option and a choice besides Biden and Trump? Yeah, I mean, Joe, I'm going to be honest. I don't think it's just name ID alone. I mean, I travel the country. I've that a lot of focus groups data. Most young people aren't aware of the legacy of the Kennedys outside of maybe they know reading who the about Kennedys it are. in a book, of course. Yeah. But I don't think that's enough to move the needle. I think it's that people are starving for somebody else. I mean, you look at the approval ratings of President Biden are not very well. You're seeing a groundswell of young individuals, particularly individuals of color, who are protesting across the country right now because they don't like the position that the administration has taken as it pertains to Israel and Hamas. Over 10,000 uh, innocent Palestinians have been killed. And so it seems that the White House is on the wrong side of a lot of issues uh, lately, yeah. and voters are looking for someone else to speak to that. Now, I'm not convinced that Robert F. Kennedy is the person to accomplish the goals that they're looking for, but when you're starving, Joy, you're going to look for something anywhere yeah. to feed you. Uh, Suzanne, uh, it, it is fascinating that he he is clearly benefiting from some kind of hunger that people have for a figure that is tied to a history that felt um, that America had a more coherent story, right? It's more familiar. Mm -hmm. He's clearly benefiting from that financially and politically. He he definitely is, and he's invoking it on the campaign. But I I, I don't think you can underestimate not only the power of having Kennedy as your last name and being part of that family. I just saw it over and over again, where he just was able to fundraise for these organizations. He was able to get on boards. His job in some sense, in, in, in the, the some of the advisory positions that I saw was simply to make connections for people. And I think that people are attracted to that. I don't think that there's any, any doubt yeah. about that. And the other thing I think about why this story was important for me, for the New York Times, it's because I think Robert F. Kennedy is not only a force right now, we'll see if he can get through. It's going to be a very difficult process for him to get on the ballot as an independent sure. candidate. But I don't think we've seen the last of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. If I have in my life covered a lot of politicians, there are a few that I have encountered when I've talked to people who know him, that he feels that he has a sense of destiny and that he should be in the White House, that this is this is his moment and, and that this is where he he is meant to be and this is his this is his path. 
Very quickly, could, very quickly. Perhaps he can't get to the White House, but remember Jill Stein against Hillary Clinton. It's oh, enough yeah. to move the needle where President Biden yeah. could potentially lose some battlegrounds. And he ain't can't Jill forget Stein. That. He and will he get isn't. 19, he absolutely not three. Will. Yeah, because yeah. he's a Kennedy, and Americans love nothing more than to elect familiar we people like from dynasties. familiar families. Yeah. People love dynasties yeah. in this country politically. Suzanne Craig, great reporting. Thank you very much for Thank being you. here to discuss it. Uh, Sher Michael Singleton. Thanks, uh, thank you, my friend. Much appreciated. Up next on The Readout, there are growing calls for George Santos's expulsion after the House Ethics Committee released a scathing report concluding he broke multiple federal laws. Go figure. This guy? Really? Stay with us. <laughs> Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Okay, look, we know, we all know that the Republican Party is Trump's party from snout to tail. But no one embodies the Trumpian ethos quite like George Anthony DeValder Santos, a.k.a. Kitar Rebash, a man who fashioned his political persona on Donald J. Trump right down to the lying, the performative outrage, and the self-victimization. Today, the House Ethics Committee finally released a scathing report after amassing overwhelming evidence of Congressman Santos's lawlessness. This report stated... What the law, the media, law enforcement, the constituents of New York's third congressional district, what everyone already knew, which is that he was a liar, a fraud and a crook. They even uncovered additional crimes that they referred to the Department of Justice, which included falsely reported loans received by his political action committee and using campaign funds for personal stuff. What did he spend other people's money on? Oh, you know, the usual stuff like Ferragamo shoes, Botox, OnlyFans payments, a weekend trip to an Atlantic City casino, a honeymoon weekend in Vegas, and cold hard cash. They also noted that Santos did not cooperate with the investigation and evaded straightforward requests for information, which should come as no surprise, given the man's penchant for mendacity. The Ethics Committee decided to forego recommending sanctions because that process would have taken too long. The chairman of the committee, Congressman Michael Guest of Mississippi, opted to support the motion to expel George Santos from Congress instead. The movement is a signal to other Republicans that they should join the push to expel. Santos called the report a disgusting politicized smear and said that he would not stand by as he is stoned by those who have flaws themselves. But he concluded that he would not seek reelection because the scrutiny was too much or probably because he wouldn't win. The House could vote on his expulsion as soon as it returns from the Thanksgiving holiday later this month. Joining me now is David Korn, Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones, and someone who has reported a lot on George Santos. Okay, it falls to you, my friend. Here's the ethics report. What's in it? Well, we know the headline already. It's the details that are delicious. I mean, the report just starts, says he lies about 
everything, every aspect of his uh, personal background, you know, where he went to college, the connection with the Holocaust and his family, all this stuff we know. Whether his mom died um, in 9-11. Yeah. But, yeah, but it also has this you know, remark when they said he took every opportunity possible to exploit financially his congressional campaigns and his stint in Congress. And I want to know when the guy slept. <laughs> because this report shows scheme after scheme after scheme. And we know there are schemes that it doesn't even cover. Yeah. You know, like the, you know, the, the, the dog charity that didn't exist or the right. area. But that, they don't even go into that. But it shows there's this money flow again and again and again when he's taking money basically from political his campaigns yeah. and other political operations he's running. And he's using them to buy Botox. And he's like, here's a $20,000 check goes into his personal bank account, which has no money at the time, and then he starts writing his rent check. He's going to ATMs at casinos and taking out the money. And this is just happening constantly. And while he's doing this in 2020, he is telling his treasurer, who's pleaded guilty to assorted crimes, to declare that he's made $80,000 in loans to his campaign. Has he? No. He's only loaned it $3,000, but the campaign pays him back. $30,000. So he is just sucking money out with these fake loans. It goes on and on. You know, they gathered 170,000 documents in this investigation. And at the end, they say, we still don't understand all his finances. There are $240,000 in, in, in money that went out. We don't know what he did with this. There are transfers of money in the tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. We don't really quite understand that either. So, you know, at the end of the day, we have so much and there's even more. Yeah. They could do a whole nother report. I don't think they're going to. Yeah. But I do think it's at least 50 50 that after this, the Justice Department that have basically, you know, they have the prosecutors have indicted him twice. Yeah. You know, they still have time before the next before the trial starts yeah. in a few months to add more stuff to the indictment. It, 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 he, he was like a nonstop grift machine while lying all about his, you know, all about the personal stuff. It's, you know, he makes the incredible, you know, talented Mr. Ripley yeah. look like a piker. It, 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 what it, it sounds like this whole purpose for being in politics was to raise money in order to achieve a lifestyle that he couldn't afford. And I do have a, a specific yeah. question. Was he paying to watch OnlyFans or was he on OnlyFans? He, they, they, said they, were, they said there were small payments made to only fans, which suggests to me he was using the site and paying for content. I, I, I don't use it, but I imagine when they say small amounts of money, $100, $200, whatever. You know, I'm reminded of the, of the wonderful Mel Brooks movie, The Producers. <laughs> when, they dis, when they discover in the original um, Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder that actually you can make more money with a play if it's a flop, you can, right. sell, you can sell more than 100% of shares and no one would expect their money back at the end and you could pocket that. I kind of think that he thought I could run for Congress, <laughs> I can make a lot of money, and if I don't win, yeah. no one's going to really know and start going back. You never look through the financial sure. campaign forums of the people who lose. Yeah. And so, and the fact is he won in a district that Biden won. I mean, I think Biden won by eight, he won by eight. Yeah. I wonder in that district what this sort of politics look like now. For There's like 170 people running for, for, for that seat. Yeah. But it seems that there's an ethos, at least on the Republican side, that the purpose of politics is this. It's performance. Performance and it's getting money well, for yourself. 
it, it's that, and of course, it's lying. And, and lying. You know, and this is what Trump has, has, has demonstrated. Um, this is a lesson he's taught our children, right? That there's no consequence for lying. You know, uh, that was true through his non-political campaign, and it's true throughout his political campaign. Um, and I think, you know, George Santos somehow absorbed that lesson and just said, I can just say whatever I want. There's no shame. No, And, and then he stuck to this. I mean, you almost have to give him credit <laughs> for this fortitude he has had where lie after lie after lie. He says, well, everybody does it. I'm no right. different. And now all this grift comes out. Well, you know, what do you think, Jared? Kushner, his grift was $2 billion from the Saudis. Right. And you're going to give me a hard time? I mean, that's true. Because, because I got 10,000 bucks from, right. from a stupid donor who should have known better than to trust me. Yeah. Well, that's essentially what he's been saying. You've written a book that talks about sort of the, de- the the decline of the Republican Party and the sort of madness of it. Is that what it is? Is it is it the party has sort of turned into a giant grift and a TV show or a TV show for Fox or for online? And that, that is the reason that they're attracting people like George Santos, because he does seem to be emblematic of something about yeah. the Republican Party that isn't unique to him. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there's no character in American Psychosis who matches <laughs> who matches George Santos, but it does show that the party, you know, has always had, which has always had a big grifting element. Sure. With Trump, grift became front and center, yeah. as did you know the, the 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 lack of shame. You know, a lot of politicians yeah. are shameless, but you know, Donald Trump kind of paved the way to a greater level and kind of opened the door for yeah. George Santos. And the fact that the Republican Party could not expel him yeah. previously or come out against him. Um, it shows that they're okay. I mean, if they yeah. start going after him for lying, yeah. what do they have to do about other people in the party? And I cannot imagine what kind of a Republican would replace him. It will probably be someone worse. Uh, David Korn, thank you very much. You've Thanks. done some great reporting on him. Uh, I'm sure you're sorry to see him go. He was a great joy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things that we could read about Kitaro Ravash. We will miss him. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate you. Coming up next, a judge moves to plug the leaks following the recent release of proffer videos from former Trump co-defendants who are now cooperating with the prosecution. Stay right there. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, Kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. The judge in the Georgia election interference case granted Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's request to shield some evidence in the RICO case against Donald Trump and his co-defendants. It comes as video statements from key witnesses were shared with two media outlets. In the order prohibiting attorneys from sharing sensitive materials, Judge Scott McAfee wrote, 
The court has an interest in ensuring that all parties retain their right to a fair trial before an unbiased jury, a process that could become unattainable should the public be allowed to vet every piece of unfiltered evidence months before trial. Prosecutors must label evidence they're seeking to protect as sensitive. Prosecutors have 30 days to review discovery they've already provided and label it. Defense attorneys will have 14 days to contest if they disagree. Meanwhile, Judge McAfee also ordered one of Donald Trump's 18 co-conspirators to appear in court next week. Harrison Floyd, the former head of Black Voices for Trump, must show up for a hearing on a motion to revoke his bond. D.A. Willis says Floyd violated his bond order through social media posts directed at likely witnesses in the case, including several targeting election worker Ruby Freeman, who Floyd is criminally charged with trying to intimidate. Willis says that because of and in response to the defendant's intimidating communications, witness Ruby Freeman has been the subject of renewed threats of violence from third parties. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney, professor at the University of Alabama School of Law and MSNBC legal analyst. Joyce, I, I, I sort of pride myself on being of not being able to be surprised by anything anymore. But I have to be honest, it surprises me that Harrison Floyd would be so brazen as to continue to attack Ruby Freeman. I'm not going to read some of the tweets that he's put up, but he seems to be repeat tweeting at her despite the fact that he's charged with trying to intimidate her. Make it make sense. I mean, is, is he on his way perhaps back to lockup? I think that there's a good chance that he is. The, the judge will certainly ask him to explain why these social media posts shouldn't be viewed as an effort to intimidate witnesses. In context of this case and the charges against him directly attacking this witness, tweeting at Brad Raffensperger, it's very difficult to view this as, as conduct that does not violate his pretrial release order. His response to it, in addition to that, <clears throat> is, is one part comical and seemingly not helpful. I mean, if, if I was his attorney, and I'm not an attorney, I don't know that I would be happy about it. Here is what he tweeted in response to the motion to revoke his bond. Clarence Thomas was right. This is a circus. It is a national disgrace. It is a high-tech lynching for an uppity black. And he included video of Clarence Thomas's 1991 Senate Judiciary Committee. It doesn't surprise me that he identifies with Clarence Thomas. But wow, if you're a judge reading that, does that encourage you to maybe sanction him more than you might? Because don't when people are faced with potentially having their bond revoked, don't they normally back down? So look, if I was a defense lawyer, which I'm not, I'm a former prosecutor, <laughs> but if I was playing for the other team, something I would tell my clients is when your bond is about to be revoked because you've been intimidating witnesses, stay off of social media, keep your head shut, keep your mouth shut and keep your head down. And this is really dangerous conduct for a defendant to engage in. I don't think the judge will punish him for this any more than he otherwise would. I do think the judge will take this conduct very seriously and consider whether custody or some other sanction is the only way to protect victims and witnesses in this case. Because the, I think the fear is that people like Ruby Freeman, who's already been subject to death threats, will then be even more afraid. She's already being subject to more threats because of this. Do prosecutors and do the judge have a responsibility to offer her protection? She probably can't afford to hire full-time security. Will, can the court protect her? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. Look, I don't think that um, she's afraid of anyone. We all saw her testify, and this is someone who understands what's at stake. But there's no reason that she should be subjected to this risk. Uh, courts, law enforcement in the state and in the county can certainly take appropriate steps to protect her. But what this does, and it's important to understand the process point for the trial, it's not just a threat to her specifically. It's in many ways an effort to intimidate witnesses beyond her to say, this can happen to you if you speak up. So the judge needs to get a handle on this now and put a stop to it. Indeed. Let's go to the other case. There's so many cases, so little time. Um, the appeals court has tempor temporarily lifted the gag order, barring him from talking about uh, court personnel in the other case. This is the civil, this, the civil trial in New York. The appellate division judge, uh, his name is David Freeman, issued the stay suspending the gag order almost immediately. Um, you know, we know that Dr. Judge Ngoron has fined Donald Trump twice for attacking his clerk and other witnesses. The attacks on the clerk resumed almost immediately once that gag order was lifted. Would you expect, as a former prosecutor, for that gag order to go right back in place? And why would they lift it at all? So it's, it's sort of a default position when you've got someone in this posture to preserve the status quo while an appeal is underway. But here it doesn't seem to fit very well with the circumstances. We know that every time Trump is subje subjected to a, a gag order, he cleans his behavior up a little bit. And then when we've seen it lifted in the courts as these appeals proceed, he resorts to attacks. His lawyers have almost certainly cautioned him at this point that he should take advantage uh, of this action by the court to show that he's capable of good behavior. Because if he goes back to attacks, it simply makes the case for keeping the gag order in place that much stronger. Uh, very quickly, we're running out of time, but I just want to ask you sort of in general, Joyce, do you feel that people connected with Donald Trump and MAGA have gotten treatment that is lighter than, than what is normal, because it seems that everyone associated with him is engaging in the same thuggishness he engages in. Does it surprise you that, the, that judges haven't been tougher on them? I, I think Trump's conduct emboldens other people. We see that in the political arena. We see that in these cases. Uh, I think Mr. Floyd will face um, some pretty serious justice at the hands of Judge McAfee in Georgia. That may well send a signal. But the problem, Joy, and this is something I struggle with, Donald Trump is a political candidate. It's important for the courts to protect his right to political speech. But when it puts people in danger and when it impacts on the possibility of fair court proceedings, then he has to be treated just like any other defendant would be. And the courts, frankly, are struggling with how to strike that balance. Struggling is the, is the operative word here. Absolutely. Joyce Vance, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. And up next, as the Israel-Hamas war intensifies in Gaza, the divide is growing here in the United States. More on that next. There are new indications today that Israel and Hamas may be getting closer to a potential hostage deal. The New York Times is reporting that negotiations for a deal are underway, with the various players working on a framework of an agreement, according to the two Israeli officials who are involved in those efforts, as well as a third with knowledge on the matter. Under the proposal, Hamas released 50 women and children abducted during the October 7th attack for roughly the same number of Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons. 
The deal, which is reportedly being negotiated by Qatari, Egyptian and American officials, would also include a so-called humanitarian pause for several days, according to four officials. But as of right now, the fighting in the region rages on. Today, residents in southern Gaza are saying that Israeli forces dropped leaflets, warning Palestinians there to flee, signaling a possible expansion of their bombardment. Those residents, however, don't really have anywhere to go in the already densely populated enclave, considering that many have already fled south to avoid attacks in the north. It comes as Israeli forces are still inside Gaza's largest hospital after storming it for the second time within two days. Hundreds of medical staff, patients, displaced families, and premature babies remain trapped inside. The conflict in the Middle East is also creating a lot of division here in the U.S., especially within the Democratic Party. Those tensions reached a fever pitch last night when pro-Palestinian protesters clashed with police at a rally outside of the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, where dozens of Democratic politicians were meeting inside. Six officers were treated for injuries, and one person was arrested. NBC News spoke to one of the demonstrators last night about why they chose to protest at the DNC. You came here tonight to say, as Democrats, you need to listen to what the Democratic base is demanding. 80% of Democrats are demanding a ceasefire. I think they want the U.S. to stop funding and emboldening the massacre of Palestinians. And that represents another huge division within the Democratic Party, as a growing number of Americans are calling for a ceasefire. Only a handful of Democrats in Congress have done so. After the break, I'll talk to the first Jewish Congress member to demand a ceasefire. And that is next. Today, Congresswoman Becca Ballant became the first Jewish Congress member to call for a ceasefire in Gaza, writing in the Vermont Digger, I'm one generation removed from the horrific trauma of the Holocaust, which impacted my family and reshaped the world. Like me, there are thousands of American Jews that share a deep emotional connection to Israel because of what it meant for the survival of the Jewish people in the face of extermination. This same history also drives so many of us to fight for the protection of Palestinian lives. I do not claim to know how to solve every aspect of this decades-long conflict. But what I do know is that killing civilians and killing children is an abomination and categorically unacceptable, no matter who the civilians are and no matter who the children are. And Congresswoman Becca Ballant, Democrat from Vermont, joins me now. I want to first ask if I've pronounced your name correctly, uh, Congresswoman. Ballant. I always say ballant rhymes with talent. So ballant, And that's I love that. Um, well, thank you so much for being here and taking the time. I just want to ask you what the reaction has been. I know that this issue is so fraught for so many people. It's so yeah. emotional. And I just it wonder is. what the reaction to you coming out for a ceasefire has been in your community, in your family. Yeah, well, I really appreciate that question. The I want people to understand, I, I wrote this op-ed for Vermonters. It was really geared at my my constituents. That was the audience because it was clear to me that people didn't realize the, the depth of my emotion, what I had been struggling with for a month. And as politicians... You can't convey that in a tweet or a, you know a state a short statement. And I am a writer, and I thought I have to take the time, the careful time. It took me a week to write that op-ed of really thinking carefully. What do I think? What do I feel? How do I express that to my constituents? And here's what I know, Joy. 
every single member of Congress on the Democratic side that I have talked with in the last month, we all want the same things. We want the suffering to end. We want the bombs to stop falling. We want Hamas not to be uh, in charge in Gaza anymore. We want the hostages back. We all want this. We are all in such pain. And I'm new to Congress, but I've talked with a lot of older members. They've all said the same things. This is the hardest moment they've ever been in because it is such a complex issue. It's been such a complex issue for so long that it is there are no easy answers. And we have gotten so hung up on trying to get the exact right words in this moment to express ourselves that we're not saying what it is that we all have in common, which is why I know each uh, colleague of mine is going to be on their own path and figuring out how to say the things that they need to say to their constituents. But I believe there is so much more that connects us and what we want and what we think is needed to get to a two-state solution than, than what divides us. And I'm trying to create a space for that conversation to happen because I don't want anyone to think that I feel like I get it exactly right. Yeah, I'm doing and saying what my constituents need to hear from me. And, and that has been my guidepost through this whole thing. And, and it is incredibly emotional. We all want to end the suffering. And I, I, I do want viewers to understand that whether your member has said uh, it in a way that, that you want them to say it or on the timeline that you wanted to say it, I want to reassure everyone we all want the same things. We're just perhaps differing on what we think is the best strategy to get there. Uh, you know, you are from Vermont. Uh, there is a rather famous United States senator from your state who a lot of his constituents are, are progressives who have been disappointed that Senator Bernie Sanders has not joined you in this call for a ceasefire. Does it surprise you that he has not? Uh, and does it surprise you that it's only Dick Durbin? There are 31 uh, people total, 31 Democrats total who've called for a ceasefire, only Dick Durbin in the Senate. Does it surprise you Bernie Sanders has not? It doesn't because I know I know Bernie well and we've we've talked repeatedly over the over the you know the last month. And I know he wants the same things that I do, as I said. And he is on um, you know, his own journey of how he conveys that to his constituents. Again, I do not believe that calling for a ceasefire is the litmus test for whether people care about Palestinians or want an end to this conflict. I know he does deeply. And we have to give each other a little bit more grace here. I really believe that. One of the, the sort of great, the sort of not giving a lot of grace, um, APAC has, has indicated that uh, there's a list of progressive members who are mainly women of color. They're all women of color, actually, yeah. uh, who are now on their list that they are going to try to unseat. What do you make of the yeah. fact that this has become a litmus, litmus test for that lobby, that they are going to try yeah. to remove them, and that one of those members was already um, sanctioned by the House, including some Democrats joining yeah. in that? Yes. Including uh, really, she's the only Palestinian, I should note. Rashida exactly. And that is that is exactly right. And and I I stood up um, for Rashida Tlaib, who we talked about. She is a friend of mine. Uh, she was one of the people uh, who, who texted me today that we 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 both share uh, a history of yeah. our people suffering. 
And, mm-hmm. and that has brought us together as friends. I, I don't support this effort to try to drive out women of color from Congress. Mm-hmm. I do not support trying to uh, take on, as you said, the only Palestinian American member of Congress. Yeah. I think this is completely um, the wrong way to go about bringing this country together in our shared values, which is yeah. a secure Palestine, a secure Israel, um, yes. you know, making sure the hostages are all released. It is just driving more of a wedge. And I want to be someone who is trying to bring people together and not continue to drive wedges. Congresswoman uh, Becca Ballant, like talent. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, you are a gracious new member, and we really appreciate getting to know you. Please come back. Thank, Thank you. you. And Thank you. And before we go, a quick programming note tonight, NBC News investigates the rise of anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Hosted by Jacob Soboroff, watch Epidemic of Hate Anti-Semitism on the Rise tonight at 10.30 p.m. Eastern, streaming on NBC News Now. That is tonight's readout. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 